digging into the history of the iconic hits that changed rock, R&B, and pop. This is Anatomy of a Song on Feedback. He is both Holly, he is Jolly, he is our man, Wall Street Journal. No, even better. <laughs> Wall Street Journal music and arts contributor, the kingpin, Mark Myers, who's usually here with Anatomy of a Song, but he's going to do a deeper dive. Sex, Dope, and Cheap Thrills, which is what uh, Janice and Big Brother and the Holding Company wanted to call Cheap Thrills. If that had happened, we may not have ever heard of them because it was like, what, 68? Yeah. Although yeah, sex and yeah, dope were everywhere, just not in album titles. Just That's not true. in just not in stores Col- that polite Columbia, folk Columbia, frequented. Columbia execs would have none of it. How you doing, guys? Hi. Oh, good. Happy Christmas. Yeah, happy holidays. Everybody's shopping. Nobody's emailing anymore. <laughs> Everything's dropped off all of a sudden. Yeah. I was just thinking Columbia execs would have none of it. You know, yeah, they tightened uh, it up. Clive Davis probably didn't hear no a lot. Um, you know, <laughs> Even listen, then. Well, you know? the thing is, he wasn't the Clive Davis we know today then. In fact... Janice is one of the the big acts that made his right. name. That's true. That's absolutely true. I mean, cheap thrills. Thank you, Aunt Mary. Aunt Ma- my Aunt Mary gave me this album in 1968. I was 12, and stared at R. Crumb's comic. You know, on the cover. You know, traced all the little panels and looked at it while the record was on, and couldn't get enough of this thing. It was really for me. Uh, this... Were you raised in the Manson family? This is yeah. an odd family. I mean, yeah, that's a little little matured album for a twelve-year-old. You know, Aunt Mary. Aunt Mary bought by the cover. You know, she wasn't <laughs> buying by the content. So um, yeah, that and Sergeant Pepper. But the um, the album was just mesmerizing and the music was so great and I think this and probably Disraeli Gears changes everything in terms of rock because songs get longer guitar solos get more extensive and you really sensed as a kid that what was going on in the music was actually talking to you and not your parents' wallet. I mean, pop rock was really so commercial, right? All those little singles you bought them but you kind of knew there was a money exchange going on Everybody who was my age got albums. They didn't have to pay for them. Like aunts gave them to them, uncles gave them to them. So getting this album, you know, it was albums were always free. You didn't have to save up at all because a relative thought they were going to be hip and they always gave you something, as I said, based on the cover, something really weird. But it wasn't a hand me down. No. It was actually bought for you, Mark. Right, sealed. Sealed. Wow. Had to open it up. That means you liked it better. If it was handed down, that's like old school. But that's like, true. Well, yeah, and it's I, I new. fortunately didn't have an older brother or sister, but I imagine if it were a hand-me-down, I would have had to sneak it out of their room, at which point I would have gotten nailed, right? I would have gotten absolutely tackled to the floor. <clears throat> so Did she give you Disraeli gears too? No, no, no. Because I was uh, going to say, your Sergeant, aunt was cool. <laughs> no, Sergeant Pepper and this one. Um, but Cheap Thrills goes to number one, and it's on that chart. It's on Billboard's album chart for eight weeks. I mean, this is a big, big album, much bigger than it's really been given credit for. But let's you know, let's do Janet's background first, because yes. Janet's always this obscure, screaming figure who, you know, accidentally ODs, and you know, she's never really given the respect as an artist that I well, think she deserves. Well, even the story, I think you're right, because think of the, her her contemporaries. You know, it's she's coming out of the Monterey Pop Festival, which also is Jimmy. We know so much about Jimmy. We know so much about, um, you know, Jim Morrison. I feel like Janice 
is someone we know so much less about. And that also was like a career-making performance as well, Monterey it, it Pop. Completely, it completely changed everything. Um, you know, but but let's let let me give you a little bit about Janice. Um, Janice, this is going to come as a shock to listeners, but Janice started out shy. You know, she was really painfully shy. Um, she's discovered by San Francisco music promoter Chet Helms at a, a, a building near the University of Texas called The Ghetto in Austin, Texas in 1962. And now the, the ghetto was this 1920s building um, with eight apartments near the University of Texas. Uh, Helms was from Fort Worth. Um, and he said he first saw Janice singing at a party at the building. And everybody sort of converged on this building, sort of a squatter's building, right? You know, people came and went. There was no real rent situation. You know, it was, it was just this place where people, it was transient. People were coming and going. But he said that she, when he saw her, she stood stiffly at the microphone and sang country blues, but only after a few swigs of whiskey. And that doesn't even sound like Janice, right? No. Petrified, you know, trying to get loose to to be able to let it go. Um, Helms had dropped out of the University of Texas, and he had urged Janice to do the same when he heard her singing. Um, and it didn't take much convincing because Janice was, she was sort of the, t- she was weird. Even, you know, 1962 weird. I don't mean like weird today. I mean like 1962 weird, which means anybody without a crew cut or with any, any woman without a hairband and, you know, a, 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 uh, um, uh, a short, you know, a skirt, and you know, anybody who wasn't going, anybody who didn't look like they were going to the prom was weird back then. So she used to wear a bomber jacket inside out. Um, she was loud. Um, she was pretty much herself, but much shyer. Um, but she was the target of ridicule, and she was the target of insults. Um, sometimes her own doing. I mean, she kind of brought it on herself, but. For the most part, she is being tormented uh, at college. Um, so she drops out. Helms and Joplin stick out their thumb, and they go hitchhiking to San Francisco in 1963. Fifty hours later from when they first go out onto the highway, Janice is playing her first gig at a place called Coffee and Confusion in North Beach. And right away, she knocks the whole place out. I mean, absolutely knocks the place out with this... Texas blues is she's starting to come into her own. Um, she gigs at a place called the Coffee Gallery, which is a big deal in, in San Francisco. Um, very, it's all folky and the Catalyst and the Barn and other Bay Area spots. And in 1964, um, Janice crashes her Vega in San Francisco, and she's got to return to Port Arthur to recuperate. Helm stays behind in San Francisco, and he does something. Um, that kind of changes music history. He, in 65, he puts together a band called Big Brother and the Holding Company. Um, you know, Big Brother after George Orwell, Holding Company after this 1920s notion of what a monopoly is. You know, it's all anti-capitalist, rebellion. Stick it to the man, man. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Um, she comes back. They beg her to come back to San Francisco to audition. You know, Helms begs her to come back. She does. Um, and in May, June, 66, she auditions with Big Brother. She gets the job. I mean, it blows them away. Um, and they play the Avalon Ballroom in 66. Uh, I mean, imagine who went up against her. 
You know, it was a ton of people. <laughs> really? They, yeah, they auditioned like something like 20 women for Whoa. this job. Yeah, yeah. Imagine that. I know, I know. Because it seems to me that there was only one choice, but I guess they could have... Well, you know, she ha- she wasn't there auditioning She wasn't yet. quite this Janice is, yet this either? Is, well, this was, this was before. This is right, this is before. Uh, before she gets there. And... The thing about San Francisco is it's a blues, it's like, it's the center of the world for British blues, American blues, blues artists, B.B. King's playing there, Taj Mahal. I mean, it's a real blues center. And it was a time to be in a band. So probably there were so many people, and they wanted a woman, so you're saying she was up against 20 other. Yeah, yeah. Wow. The thing about San Francisco is, um, in addition to its um, uh, liberal, civic, um, benefits policy, like medical care, other things. San Francisco was a very grassrootsy um, city. It's why it's why politicians who are from there are still kind of laughed at because it's it's a it's a very hippie culture. Even in government, it's a very hippie culture and very ahead of its time in terms of social programs. So that when America's youth got tired of listening to their parents tell them to not do things all the time or bossing them around or, you know, parents who are cruel to their kids. All these kids left and went to San Francisco because they heard that's where bands were. That's where the action was. That's where you could like live cheaply in in the Haight-Ashbury section. And you could pretty much um, be in an environment where it never got lower than about 52 degrees all year. So you didn't have to take your coat. Um, So these Ballrooms, these old ballrooms from the 20s and 30s, um, were kind of abandoned. A lot of these clubs just sort of sprung up in these warehouses. And all of these bands, all of these people who came to San Francisco who were musically inclined, began forming bands. And they began playing at Avalon and Fillmore and places like that. Um, and it became a music center just because everyone escaped there and um, living was cheap. But um, once she gets the job, I mean, we're talking about the real Janice at that point. I mean, because if you hear the Avalon Ballroom recording, you know, she's not full throttle yet. But um, Janice is singing, you know, she's constantly been knocked for ripping off Bessie Smith or she's constantly been knocked for ripping off African-American female blues artists, which is kind of unfair. I mean, there's plenty of other people you can blame for doing that. My feeling is that if you come from if you come from pain and you come from agony and you are singing about that agony, but you happen to be using Delta Blues and Chicago Blues to do it, then you own that stuff. You're part of the blues tradition. Um, it's people who kind of, you know, had a very comfortable existence, don't really have any history. They don't have any blues. They don't have any experience to draw from. Janice is really drawing from a lot of experience, a lot of personal experience of getting mocked, pushed around. She's got a lot of issues, may have been mental health issues, who knows about depression, things like that. You know, mental health, I'm talking, I'm not talking about extreme mental health issues, I just mean depression and ADD and anxiety and, um, you know, all these... Things that were never talked about back then, they weren't diagnosed. Compulsive issues, right. They weren't diagnosed, people were just considered weird. Yeah, people didn't even know it was a thing, really. Correct. Exactly. So Janice is part of the blues tradition. And when you hear her singing, it's people don't freak out when they hear her because she's just, you know, wailing. They're hearing the pain. You know, that blues is only authentic when it connects with your heart. If it doesn't connect with your heart, then the person singing it is full of it. Right. They're just 
trying to copy something. But if you really feel the agony of somebody, then they actually live that stuff. It's just that they happen to listen to Bessie Smith and they really capture it. Did she sound a bit like Bessie Smith? Sure. But a lot of people sound like a lot of people, right? The Beatles sounded like the crickets. They sounded like Buddy Holly. So, you know, it all it all comes together. Um, so she gets the job. Um, let's listen to some of her early stuff because um, the listener, I, I think to hear her early on as it matures very quickly, you'll, you'll hear what's going on. Um, we're going to hear her uh, singing in Santa, Cla- um, Santa Clara, California in 1964. This is interesting. With guitarist Jorma Corrin. Now, he's on guitar, right? And, you know, Jorma, of course, goes on to be a member of the Jefferson Airplane. Mm. But at this point in time, he's in Santa Clara. And this is from a tape called the Typewriter Tape. This is 1964. Janice is singing. Um, Jorma's wife was typing a letter while they were recording. So you can hear in the background... But not on purpose, not no, in a no, found no, no. sound it's, right. kind it, of way. It's not an over it's not an overdub or a layered sound. It's she's typing a letter and they're in a small they can he can it travels and it's in the mic. You can hear it. So it's been called the typewriter tape. Later as I said, later, you know, Jorma's um, part of Jefferson Airplane. But here's Janice Joplin singing Hesitation Blues. Um, and let's get let's get a piece of it and you can hear the typewriter in there too. So there she sings, uh, she's singing, she's definitely channeling Bessie Smith yeah. there. You can hear it distinctly. Jeez. Uh, yeah. Um, but it's, it's great to have her early on in 64 to get a sense of where she's coming from in terms of what kind of blues she's choosing. Um, in 65, Janice records seven songs alone with her guitar. Um, other instruments were added later, overdubbed later. Um, but in this case, um, she recorded this initially um, alone. Uh, it was produced by James Gurley, interestingly, the guitarist with Big Brother and the Holding Company. Um, here's 219 Train. Kind of interesting, right? It's almost Peggy Lee. Yeah, it's so funny. Whenever you mention, and you've mentioned it a couple of times, whenever I even hear the words Janis Joplin, I automatically go to that to that whale, yeah. to the whale, to yeah. the gr- even gruffness. Yeah, this yeah. is sweeter. It's it's a croon almost. It's a ballad. Yeah, yeah. it's like Peggy Lee. Um, so she joins Big Brother in June '66 at the Avalon Ballroom. Here she is at the concert. This is Down on Me live, and now you've got Janis full blown. What down on me? Almost full blown. Now, she's become herself. I was going to say, that's less Bessie Smith and more Big Mama Thornton. Yeah, yeah. So then, when Big Brother recorded their first album in 66 um, for mainstream, um, Joplin's name, even though she's with the band, her name wasn't even on the cover. She's just... You know, a girl singer. She's someone, uh, someone singing on the side. But let's listen to a track from that album. This is uh, '66. This is, and it's, what's interesting is they don't include her on the cover, and she sings one of the early women's rights songs, um, "Women Is Losers," which is such a great song. Women is losers. Women is losers. Women is losers. Oh, so honey, women is losers. 
All right, so now comes the turning point. So in June 67, Joplin blew everybody's mind at Monterey Pop um, Festival. Um, um, she first appears with Big Brother on stage on Saturday on Saturday afternoon, June 17. Um, but Big Brother wouldn't let D.A. Pennybaker film them for the documentary um, because they worried that they might suck oh, dude. and that it wouldn't be on camera right they, they later claimed like it was like the money thing we're not getting any money for it but it had nothing oh, yeah, to do with it I heard the whole money story no it was really like well, what if we suck like we're going to be on this thing forever so they decide not to so guess what happens Saturday on, night they kill it, it forever. right they well, well no no they kill it Saturday they absolutely kill it everybody goes nuts and they they agree Penny Baker, they, they work something out where they do an evening performance the next night uh, on Sunday the 18th, um, and it was filmed. Penny Baker was able to film it, and that's what you see if you go to YouTube. Um, you know, let's listen to Ball and Chain at Monterey and move it up a little bit because it's got a big, it's got a bit of a guitar intro in the beginning. So she's standing there with her inky eyes. She's wearing this gold Colin Rose tunic and matching pants. I mean, it's so powerful, this performance. If we listen to the whole thing, you'd hear her amp it up, and she starts wailing away on it, almost like an electric guitar. And that's the thing about Janice's vocal. It's really the first time a woman is singing like an electric guitar. Um, and in fact, she's like one of the guitars in that band. She's taking all the guitar solos, but it's vocal. Um, not, I mean, not literally, but when she sings, it's a guitar vocal. Um, so powerful, right? So powerful that Columbia's Clive Davis immediately jumps up and he's pushing his way backstage to sign her. Um, he's basically starting the rock division at Columbia. Columbia didn't have any rock at all. Um, the problem is when he gets back there is that they're already signed to mainstream records, right? And so Davis spends the next bunch of months negotiating to get her free from her, her agreement and he ex winds up paying 200,000 bucks. Now, 200,000 bucks today sounds like, okay, so that's the big deal. Well, in, in 67, oh. that's 1.5 million. He pays 1.5 million for a band that's very touch and go. You don't know what's going to happen with these guys to free them from their contract so they can sign with Columbia. And in, so that's, this is June of 67 where they sing at Monterey by in February of 68 they're freed up and Janice and Big Brother sign with Columbia and as soon as they sign it's basically get to work we got to get the first album done we got to get you out there you're really hot we need an album to promote um, so they say so set to work on their first album for Columbia but they have a problem Monterey's so hot Word of mouth gets around and now that they're touring relentlessly everybody wants them to appear now in the old days, you you toured, stopped for six months, recorded, toured, recorded. These guys had to record while they're touring, um, and really, you know, it's a gruel. They've got a grueling tour. Um, so what they what they did is Columbia first sent a touring studio of a, a truck around to sort of capture the concert, um, a co concert material to tape it. But when they listen back to the tape, they can't hear themselves because the audience is so loud that they, they realize they've got to go into a studio. So the only way to do it is when they hit New York and they hit L.A. on this tour, they record cheap thrills in studios in New York and L.A. 
and they overdub the concert sound. So when you hear this live sound, oh, that is virtually so... all the tracks. Talk about that's... cheap thrills. <laughs> so they're that's so building. good, the audience essentially ruins the recording by showing them so much love. Except it, we don't know that crazy. as kids. The album that Aunt Mary gave me, I'm listening to it. It sounds live to everybody. There's extra drama. You're really feeling in your heart that you want you as a kid you want to go to one of these concerts. Was that something kept quiet for a long time? Yeah. It wasn't it wasn't like, you know, the a sticker wasn't slapped on and it said and Concert noise added, kids. Yeah, that was, that was the rumor. That was a rumor about Framp that comes alive for years too. Yeah. Let's take a quick break. We got a lot yeah. more to go. A lot more to dig deep into. Uh, Janis Joplin, Mark Myers breaking it down on feedback. We'll be right back. You inside the making of a hit. This is Anatomy of a Song on Feedback. Yeah. All right, so we're back. We all have our mistletoe belt buckles on. Sirius XM 106. It's volume feedback. Nick Carter, Lori Majewski. Our pal Mark Myers from the Wall Street Journal is here. So when we left off... Uh, Clive Davis had just opened up the checkbook to the tune of two hundred grand to uh, get Big Brother and the Holding Company, aka Janis Joplin, and the backup band. Yep, one point five million on his in label. Those days. That's a lot of cake in like '68. You gotta give, you know, gotta give Clive Davis credit. I mean, nobody was touching rock except single. It was just a singles job. Everybody was recording forty fives. He sees the vision. I mean, he sees rock and roll on twelve inch albums. He sees the marketplace for it, and he knows that kids will buy it, or their uncles and aunts will buy it for them. But it's a market that hasn't been exploited. And yet. that story could have ended right there. Like, how fired would he have been if this didn't happen? Yeah, after spending that kind of money, yeah, and that. There could have been a bidding war. Big time, big time. Um, so as as we were talking before, you know, they, they, they have to record cheap thrills in the studio because they're on the road touring. They can't do this stuff live. They can't capture it live because the acoustics are all off. Back in those days, today you can record anything live, but back then it's basically sticking microphones up and getting a reel-to-reel going, and it's just they're not getting the sound that they want. It sounds lousy. It sound, You can't really hear it acoustically. Um, so when a c- recording is done... Um, Janet and Big Brother wanted to call the album. They said they they call a meeting with Clive, and you know Janet and that Janice and that voice says, uh, "We know we want to, you know, we know we want to call a Clive. We know we want to call." And he goes, "All right, what do you guys want to call?" She goes, "Sex, dope, and cheap thrills." And that would that we're firm on that. That's what it's got to be. <laughs> so uh, Clive says, <laughs> Clive says um, diplomatically, "Interesting. Uh, uh, let me take it up with the other executives," which basically means like I'm going to kill it. Uh, but I'm I'm first gonna like I agree with you I like it but I, I need a, a committee. Gonna act like someone else right. turned but down. But Laurie said it earlier. Like even in the you know, laissez-faire, crazy sex and drugs and rock and roll '60s, that was still like saying uh, we never want to be heard from ever again. Yeah, but if Clive, if right, it, it, because if Clive is gonna if they're gonna be marketing this to the teen market and they want to get this into stores in the South and in places where, you know, that kind of stuff is just not not accepted yet or ever accepted or maybe it's too accepted today. Um, you know, it's just not it's just not going to happen. So, you know, Clive comes back and says, look, I've got good news and bad. Um, and, you know, you've got you've got you've got half your title. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, oh, great. You know, sex, sex, and, sex, dope. And, <laughs> yeah, sex and dope. <laughs> so, he goes, well, you know, that didn't quite make it. But cheap thrill sounds good. And they said, all right, fine. You know, they let, they, we'll give you two of the six words in your title. <laughs> yeah. You know, they're they're, they're 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 cocky, but they're not crazy. So done, done and done. Cheap thrills is 
you know, when this thing, I mean, this thing comes out in August of 68. And like I said, I remember it. Everybody I know remembers it. The Akram comic on the cover was amazing because everybody like me, I mean, for everybody seemed to have my experience, which is a friend came back from San Francisco. It always, the story always starts this way. Fill in the blank, my older brother, my older sister, a friend, two of my friends, and then it, the rest of it reads, came back from San Francisco and they brought with them Zap Comics. What is Zap Comics? Nobody knew in the East. Oh, these are underground comics. What's an underground comic? They're just for adults. What do you mean? And then the person just smiled and handed you Zap Comics with Mr. Natural on the cover, and you read it, and you couldn't believe what you were reading. San Francisco just seemed like this amazing place to be. And there it was on the cover of Cheap Thrills. So it was just, the, the audience knew it recognized it, was familiar with our crumb already because people had come back from San Francisco with underground comics or adult comics. Um, today we call so them, what, them adult like novels or something? Graphic, made, I was going to say, it's, it's the, like, like the precursor to graphic novels. Correct. It made you feel like you were in on the joke because and you already on, knew it. Yeah, you and know? in on the scene. Yeah. You, know, you were part of the Summer of Love, even though it was 1968 and the Summer of Love was a year earlier. You know, you felt like, yeah, I, San Francisco, I, I've got, I've, I'm in on that too. You know? The squares don't understand, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah, really. Um, so, it, you know, the, the thing about this album is every song lasts more than four minutes, and one of the songs on the album lasts nine. I mean, it's an unusual it's album. 68. Yeah, 68, <laughs> right? I mean, Before keep, Prague. Yeah, but keep in mind, like, the Beatles, the White Album comes out in 68. Everything's two minutes and 80 seconds, right? Everything, everything <laughs> you know, the, the Beatles, the Stones, Dylan, those guys are really... 45 artists. I yeah, mean, they're still look, making, like, even on the White Album, but they were like a hit singles, quote-unquote, band. That's it. Penny Lane's all 45s. The Stones, everything lasts two minutes and 49 seconds. Dylan, all of that stuff is, you know, 45s. It's all for 45s. Um, this is, these, are, they, these guys are one of the first groups to, uh, Big Brother, to start going long, and other, other groups as well. But anyway, you know, this group is, is, jo- is Janice on vocals, Sam Andrew on lead guitar, uh, bass and vocals, James Gurley's on guitar, Peter Albans on bass and Dave Getz on drums. The, Dave, the name Dave Getz, every time I read Dave Getz as a kid, it was like, I wish I had that name. It was like the, it was like the coolest name in the world. The only thing cooler than Dave Getz would be some, to be named Mickey, right? So, you know, it's it just a very cool name. Um, so this past November, Columbia Legacy releases 30 tracks from the vaults. 25 of the 29 studio outtakes from Cheap Thrills have never been released before. So this, this album that just came out is unbelievably great because none of it has ever been heard before. And it's from the Cheap Thrill Sessions. Um, Big Brother took a lot of grief over the years, I think unfairly. Um, Joplin left Big Brother in December of 68. This is like several months after the album came out. A yeah. lot of people told her, you can do better. You should be the solo artist. Get yourself a better band. Um, and she does. You know, she does. She, she leaves them behind. Um, in my opinion, she never found that better band. I mean, I think the Cosmic Blues Band was great, but it was a little too, um, uh, a little too groomed, a little too good. Um, Can and you I th- just give us a little bit behind her leaving them? Because that's what I was getting at before. I thought that there was some sort of a a story about how they got her away from him. Everybody, uh, all of her friends were telling her, 
you you're the you're the straw stirring this drink. I mean, it's you. It's you, baby. You're the one who's making this thing happen. Um, you should be a solo artist. You should be Janis Joplin, and there should be some band back there that nobody knows the name of, but they're just great. They're just wailing away. You know, you need somebody who can up the game for you. So it's you. the age-old story. Oldest it's story the in the world. Story. Same with Morrison yeah. and the Doors. Oldest story in history. Did she outgrow the band? Probably. Um, does she sound better with the other Two bands that she records with. The first is Cosmic, you know, the Cosmic Blues Band, and then finally Full Tilt Boogie Band with Pearl, you know, on the Pearl album. They're too slick. You know, um, for me, uh, the Big Brother and the Holding Company, it's, they're, they're, there's something garage about Big Brother. There's something very San Francisco grungy, don't you think? And back to what you said, like the irony of that is yeah, that comes out in no mention of her. Again, right. like you were saying, she's just some chick singer in their eyes. That's right. Big Brother and the wow. Holding Company, you know, with, with this woman wailing away, you know, with this woman singing like an African-American from uh, from Chicago. So, you know, they, they sort of didn't quite understand stardom yet in in album rock, uh, but the, the, Clive was quick to get there. Um, but let, let's listen to four takes. Let's listen to pieces of this album. Um, let's listen to four takes of my favorite song, Piece of My Heart. Um, this is, you know, with guitarist Sam Andrew, that explosive blues vamp that opens this thing up. <clears throat> but let, let's listen to the, the, the intro little bit in, into the song um, of four of them. Let's, let's start with Peace of My Heart. Let's listen to the master first. This is what ends up on the album. I forgot how gritty that is, actually. It's Garage. In my opinion, that's two guitars going at it. It's just that Janice is using her voice. That must have cut through the radio like a knife when it, it first insane, came out. insane, insane. No matter what you put it on. Let's listen to take three of this song. Peace of my heart. Slower. A little more, little more sluggish. A little bass heavy. Yeah, a little darker even. Yeah. It's sort of crawling along, right? It doesn't explode. It's almost like a, a blues march. And she can't get off, right? She doesn't ignite, really. Now, let's listen to take four. And what's interesting about take four is she's, she, she's, she, they obviously said, John Simon, the producer, said, let's pick it up. And the band wanted to pick it up. And before they even start, you hear Janice going through these vocal calisthenics to get amped up to really drive this thing not into the wall but through the wall let's listen to take four okay you hear that there we go still a little slightly slow not as not as fast as the master but listen to her voice here it's just shredding. I mean, think of her voice as a guitar. Don't think of it as a voice. Man, that's so good, isn't it? And the fact that she has to shift from that scream, from the wail, 
to a confidential yes. blues lyric. Yes. Yes. And, this, and this is also a time before they're tracking each instrument. Like, they're just playing together. And she yeah. has to make that shift live on the fly. Wow. Yeah. yeah like, it, today, she would do that part so separately. That, totally. Yeah. Oh, you want to hear a little taste of take six? And then we'll move on? Yeah, okay. Let's There's, just, like, what, eight? Eight uh, new ones in total? No, the, actually, oh, just song? these four. Just, just these. Okay. I don't know how many because they never listed the take of the master. Okay. My sense is the master's a Frankenstein. Is this a splice job? Take six. One, two, three, four. <laughs> That's, that's it. Yeah, it's just great stuff. All right, let's listen to two takes of Catch Me Daddy. Catch Me Daddy never made it to the album. In fact, there's about eight songs or nine songs on this new set from Columbia Legacy, this uh, Sex, Dope, and Cheap Thrills, that never made it onto the album. Um, and this is, let's let's take take one of Catch Me Daddy. I don't know you, but the hairs on my arm are standing How up. How did that not make the cut? <laughs> Holy smokes. That's a guitar. I mean, the interesting thing is, if you listen to this, Jimmy Page and Robert Plant are channeling Janice, right? I mean, she's, she's both of those guys combined. And again, how did that. that not make the cut? Yeah. Holy smokes. I mean, uh, uh, let's listen to take 10, which is a little, I think it's a little wilder even. I was like she's peeling out in the Harley, right? All right. So let's listen to another track on this on, on the, from these studio takes from Columbia Legacy. Um, here's one of the great rock bass riffs of all time. One of the great early bass bass riffs. Um, here's "I Need a Man." This is the master take. Yeah, that's like fireworks, isn't it? Listen to that bass, though. It's a great riff. I mean, Strange to me, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, that thing sums up San Francisco. That one bass riff, boom, San Francisco 68. Let's listen to take four of that. And again, you know, for the listener, listen to the bass riff coming into this thing. It's just, and this is just the instrumental part. You know, when Janice comes in, it's she puts this thing in orbit. I can't remember how much of this comes before Janice. Anyway, and she somehow figured she was better off with a different band. Yeah, I, but smokes. you know, the, all right, listen to this. I need a man to She's like a cat on a fence, right? Don't you understand? Like meowing this thing. I need a man to love. You know I've got to find it. Got to help it like the air I really know. One loving man to understand it. Wow. too much to need because it can't be now. Can't be now. Can't 
That ascending scale is crazy. When you listen, you think it's going to go wrong. Maybe it's also because it's a demo. Like, you think it's going to go wrong, and it doesn't. She just keeps it on the right side of just go, almost going off. Absolutely. That's a great point. It's so weird. Her vocal is always on the edge, right? You always think it's going to crack. I mean, that's- It doesn't. That's the circus quality of it, right? You always think the guy's going to fall off the trapeze, or the guy on the motorcycle in the cage is going to fall. You know, when when you can get to a point where you're performing, and it sounds like you're going to screw up, and you don't- And she doesn't. That's gold. That's the key. The car's going around on two wheels but yeah. she keeps it on the track that's yeah. the key okay we'll take a break refill the bong get some patchouli and we'll be back <laughs> on feedback with mark myers Feedback returns in just a moment. This is Anatomy of a Song on Feedback. Breaking down music's evolution and the role each song played in shaping our culture. Merry New Year! <laughs> Sirius XM 106, it's volume feedback. Nick Carter, Lori Majewski, hope you're enjoying your holiday celebrations. Uh, Lori, the reason why I wore uh, flowers in my hair is because we're going to San Francisco. Mark Myers is here from the Wall Street Journal. You like that? I'm waiting to do that it's all day. It's very Alex. I feel like <laughs> Alex is already there and we're joining him. Listen, you, that's all mine. Anyway. Mark Myers is here. Uh, it took us through the uh, the evolution of Cheap Thrills, the uh, Big Brother and the Holding Company, aka Janis Joplin, cha- like Big Bang that changed the world of rock. Yeah. But uh, where are we going now? We're still in San Francisco, but I think what the listener really should hear is that Janis Joplin and Big Brother and the Holding Company wasn't a star. Um, they, they're not an isolated marble in a box, right? There's a culture, there's something going on in San Francisco that's extremely potent and that turns into hard rock. Um, there's um, there's many bands playing hard rock. Uh, and what I mean by hard rock is guitar-centric rock and roll that is long. I mean, long solos, there's no time limit. They don't have to conform to the three minutes of the 45. It's an FM-driven form of music because FM radio's got plenty of time to play lengthy tracks. Solos are important. Musicians are able musicians who are good are able to express themselves much longer than to squeeze something into a hook or a, a vamp and get it done. Um, and let's get let's get a sense of what's happening in San Francisco in, in 68. Um, in 67 you've got the summer of love. It's just everybody's in San Francisco. Um, there's a lot of ass, there's a lot of drugs, there's a lot of, you know, painting of shirts, painting of faces. Um, There's just a lot of expression, a lot of art. There's a lot of theater, a lot of poetry there. It's just an art. It's a youth art central 
uh, place um, in the country um, that also happens to be uh, photogenic. So Life Magazine's there, news programs like NBC and CBS are doing. This is what kids are coming to today. This is the new culture. This is what's happening. Free sex, free love, free everything. Rolling Stone. Uh, yeah. Just started there. Yeah. Rolling, that's it. But there's other music. Um, Big Brother and the Holding Company and Janis Joplin are part of a um, uh, part of a culture, part of a series of groups there. Um, and I thought what I, we'd just run through a, a handful of these. Um, let's listen to Paul Butterfield Blues Band. Yeah. Let's listen to uh, East West from August of 66. This is a San Francisco hard rock band, blues rock band. This is got just a little soul funk in there. But this, this track lasts like about 9, 10, 11 minutes. Like every British invasion band points to Paul Butterfield. All of them. This is it. I mean, John Mayall particularly, right? Yeah. Now, is this the guitar solo of, uh, you know, of later bands? Uh, no. Is this the guitar solo of more developed bands at the time? Is this Led Zeppelin guitar solo? No. This is basically, this is a funk, really a funk blues riff, and somebody's messing around with the blues on top of it. But the point here is, is that with this particular band, um, it's, it's length, it's expressing oneself until one's finished, uh, and then you know other artists, other musicians playing in the band jump in. Um, let's listen, uh, in, in November of 66, let's listen to Jefferson Airplane in the morning. Now, this kind of music works well there because people are dropping stuff and they're phasing out and they're stoned and, you know, they want to dance for long periods of time. They don't want to dance for three minutes, so they basically go long. You know, these groups go long because the people in the audience are dancing, they're swaying, and they want to keep playing for them. Um, Let's listen to the Grateful Dead's Viola Street Blues, which is March of um, 1967. It's like psychedelic stacks. Yeah, yeah. And it's also, you know, there's a folk rock thing. It's really, it's really the birds done to, birds with a better backup band and psychedelic overlay, right? It's the folk rock California sound, but it's really taken uh, to a different kind of punch. And um, the folk feel is more, har- you know, harmony driven, I think. Um, these guys have just a great sound. Um, Here's a band people don't have forgotten about, but these guys were great. I mean, they, they really were really special, but they've kind of been forgotten, and they've just been tossed by the wayside, but really special stuff. This is Country Joe and the Fish, right? Let's listen to Section 43. This is from May of 67. Listen how good these guys were. This is real black light music, right? Yeah, psychedelic posters. <laughs> The kid in his bedroom drops acid for the first time. Yeah. Thinking. I'm like, yeah. oh, God. Like, the parents tell the kid they can, you know, paint the room whatever color he wants. They come back, like, two hours later, and the whole room's black. <laughs> you know? Posters very, are up. Very doors to me. Yes, yeah. it's the doors. Yeah. Totally. I can't see my hand, man. <laughs> That's good stuff. But again, if you listen to this whole thing, I mean, they're not, this isn't a throwaway band. This is a real San Francisco sound. You've got that psychedelic organ going. It's it's drawn out. It's moody. 
um, you know, again, it's a psychedelic sound, which means, you know, someone is, you know, dropping something or smoking something, and then they're listening to this stuff. God bless that Farfisa, yeah. man. <laughs> um, let's listen to Cream. Now, not because they're from San Francisco, but because they were in San Francisco all the time. They were hugely influential. They were constantly playing there. And I would say they're probably one of the most influential San Francisco bands. Um, one of the most influential bands on the San Francisco scene. They're obviously from England. It's a, it's a, it's a power band. It's a super band. Um, let's listen to um, Sunshine of Your Love because it's so great. November of 67. It's getting me dawn. I think Ginger Baker actually moved to San Francisco for a while. Yeah, yeah. I'll soon be with you, my love. Give you my dog surprise. I'll be with you, darling. So it's almost the San Francisco sound taken up a level, right? This is yeah. all chronological, so everything you've heard. I'm waking up. Yeah, yeah. Everything you've heard preceded this. Again, this, is, this gives you the chronology. Butterfield, air, you know, Airplane, The Dead, Country Joe. That all precedes Sunshine of Your Love. Now let's listen to Peace of My Heart. Let's listen to The Master, and you can hear how that fits into this puzzle. It, that follows Sunshine of Your Love. That's August of, 2000, uh, August of 68, 19, uh, 1968. Now it makes sense, right? It's brighter. Yeah, brighter, punchier. And it's bigger, you know, that the guitar is almost, it almost sounds like saxophones, right? It's like a sax section. It's more dynamic and dimensional. And it's summer too. I, I can imagine this, you know, people sitting around listening to it, coming yeah. out of cars. Holy so, smoke. You know, crank this up a little bit. You hear, you hear everything that precedes this is sort of a mellow vocal, right? Everything you hear, whether it's a, airplane, you know, um, even Cream, Grateful Dead, it's how mellow could you be, you know, everybody's mellow. And Janice just comes in there and just sets the thing on fire. And if you think of this, think of Led Zeppelin. And one time we should like go back and forth between Joplin and Led Zeppelin to really hear how those guys channel this. But you're right, it takes two of them to make one of her. Right, exactly right. That's, that's perfectly put, beautifully put. That, that, that's like barbed wire. Yeah. It's so, so, it just sticks. It's Texas, baby. Holy it's Texas. smoke. What a journey you took us on. That's fun going to San Francisco today, You just forgot today, to bring right? us the acid, that's all. <laughs> well, hi, I don't right, want to see you on acid. Let's start with weed and work up. <laughs> I brought cookies. <laughs> no, I mean, no cookies. kidding, man. But you, they're you, laced, I, I forgot to tell you. Oh, <laughs> no kidding, man. And you just brought it all back. <laughs> And San Francisco, I mean, it just was, it was such a hopping scene overall. In addition to the music, there was art and it just, it was like, it was like a, a happening. It's, you know, 68, you know, things, it's, it's between, it really is between uh, Woodstock, it's between, you know, Woodstock and Manson. I mean, you know, we, 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 San Francisco, you've got the summer of love. San Francisco starts to deteriorate in 68. It's just, it, everything becomes bad. There's too many kids coming in there. Everything's getting nuts. And all of these artists from the, from the San Francisco area, all of them descend on Los Angeles to record albums. Well, it's also the last gasp between, you know, the, the reprieve after World War II and the real downward spiral that we take now as a country with, you know, with with the Vietnam War, I mean, we're already in it, but then you know Nixon, and it's it's kind of an interesting crossroads. It's yeah, a year before the, Altamont. For the, the artists, here's what's really interesting too: the artists who flourish in '67, '66, '67, and you hear Cheap Thrills in '68. By the end of '68, 
the all of these artists in San Francisco are moving to Laurel Canyon. They're all moving down to Los Angeles because that's where the money is. And that's the great irony, where it's peace, love, and, you know, push away materialism and don't bring up money. All that stuff in San Francisco gets tossed away as these super artists move down to San Francisco and they move down to Los Angeles and they start recording for the major record labels that are in Los Angeles. And, you know, everything becomes new cars, new houses, new clothes. You know, Janice winds up driving a Porsche. Hypocrites all. Yeah, over <laughs> overnight it becomes commerce. That's yeah. insane. Yeah. Well, you know, that's uh, they they move down there. But the other way to look at it is, artists started to get paid what they deserved. Well, no, that's absolutely true. But it, it it's peace and love. You can't survive without the money part. And that's, that's the it. not idealistic enough to say, but it's true. They yeah. didn't sell out, man. They bought in. Then David they could buy Geffen, more. You know, all the Electra Records. I mean, all the independent labels. Los Angeles becomes the big hard rock music scene um, in 1968, and then Woodstock's at 69, and from there it just becomes uh, stere cheaper stereo systems and kids at home enjoying what everybody else went to see live. Like I mentioned, Altamont's 69 too, and that's like fi the final nail in the coffin of that innocence. Yeah, I mean, Jeez. after after that, uh, goodbye outdoor festivals. And say what you will about what Clive Davis ended up becoming, he became more of a pop guy, but what an ear that guy had. Yeah, I mean, think if you think about the people he signed, uh, he really took a big gamble um, on hard rock, on blues rock. But keep in mind, you know, it's not the big the big transformation. Although he signs them, the big big turning point for all of this is that Japan figured out how to sell FM radio in integrated receivers. Mm. And when that starts in '69 and '70 when you can go to the to, to stores in Boston and all college campuses and find stereo stores selling turntables, speakers, and receiver packages. Once that happens, once Japan is able to import their product, FM, the ra FM radio band for the first time is on American, American sold receivers. That's when FM radio takes off. That's when hard rock takes off. That's when album rock takes off. We could go on forever, but sadly we have to wrap it up. And I say again, Clive Davis, Two hundred thousand dollars in '68. If that band hadn't hit, he's so fired. Yeah. So fired. Yeah, it's a lot of money. Well, 1. thank 5. you, Mark, and Merry my Christmas. My pleasure. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Yeah. And to the listeners, happy holidays. As and always. Happy 2019. We'll see you again next year. Yeah. As always, you brought us a stocking full Thanks of knowledge, man. Me. Thank you for having me, Mark Myers, Wall Street Journal. Batting a thousand, another home run. All right, coming up next, we're going to talk Christmas music. The uh, the guy behind Jingle Bell Rocks, the producer, the director, the star, Mitchell Kezin. You won't want to miss this on feedback. <laughs> 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 <laughs>